London faces the prospect of a £300 million pollution penalty every year from Europe over bad air, and that's largely from traffic in our capital. Engineers say part of the solution lies with electric transport, so this week we're getting under the hoods of a new generation of vehicles ranging from the first electric buses to tomorrow's supercars. Plus, news about how scientists are making objects levitate in the lab with sound and why there are now three types of type 2 diabetes. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Greer Jackson, and we're The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. If you don't know what a tractor beam is, then you possibly didn't watch enough Star Trek. But for the uninitiated, this is a way of manipulating objects at a distance. And Bristol University's Bruce Drinkwater has managed to do it using patterns of sound waves, which he fashions into a sonic cage in the air that can trap things. And if you move the sonic cage, then whatever's inside it moves with it. The discovery could make a big difference to the way that we practice medicine. We've made the world's first fully functional tractor beam and for it to be a tractor beam it's got to be able to grab an object from one side so it means there's got to be a source of the energy in our case sound waves it's got to travel out it's got to grab the object and we've got to be able to pull that object back towards the source talk us through the experimental approach then what do you do and how does it work so kind of imagine in front of you an array of lots of little loudspeakers. Uh, the array is about the size of a, a dinner plate, basically, and each of the loudspeakers is about a, the size of your thumbnail. And they're all outputting sound waves. The key for us is to carefully control the way in which those individual outputs from all those different loudspeakers interfere. So we're creating an interference pattern, and we refer to that as an acoustic hologram because it's three-dimensional, although you can't see any of it. There's a three-dimensional sound field there. If you could go in there and listen to it, the sound would vary in three dimensions. And so we've carefully tuned the output of those loudspeakers to create these very special conditions that produce ultimately tractor beam effects, so levitation, rotation, movement. What frequencies, in other words, what's the pitch of the sound that's coming up? Would I be able to hear it? No, you wouldn't be able to hear it. So our current system is operating at 40 kilohertz. So your ears can hear somewhere between 15 and 20 kilohertz, depending on your age. So we're well above that. We're in the range that bats and dogs and cats could hear so they probably wouldn't like our experiment but the good thing about that frequency range is it means we can use really loud sounds and yet we still can't hear them the sound comes out of this array of speakers and the different waves are interacting with each other in a way that you're carefully controlling when they do that and they create this three-dimensional holographic sound effect this soundscape what effect does that have then on things that are within the the area of influence of that sound. The best way of describing this tractor beam and these trapping points is the objects that we're levitating and trapping are at a quiet location, so the sound level is very low, and they're surrounded by a a cage of high-intensity sound. So if they try to move, they're pushed back by this high-intensity sound. And what sorts of objects can this influence? The full range isn't isn't yet known. We, we've worked on a scale of um, millimetres. So at 40 kilohertz, the wavelength of, of sound in air is about a centimetre. So we can only levitate uh, objects that are smaller than about half of that. So we're up to about five millimetres, so the size of a small pea. You could scale this in either direction. You could go to both smaller scale or larger scale, which might be of more interest to sci-fi fans. Unfortunately, if you go to a larger scale, 
then that means a lower frequency, which eventually means you'll be able to hear it. What's the range? Presumably the sound is spreading out away from the loudspeaker array and therefore becoming weaker with distance, so there must be a point at which it it won't work anymore. Yeah, you're quite right. You have to achieve certain levels of sound intensity in the vicinity of the object that that you're levitating. You need something like 140, 150, perhaps higher decibels in that locality. And so, yeah, as the sound propagates, so it decays. Our, our system can levitate things up to about 30 centimetres away from it. If we had more powerful transducers, we could extend that. I could imagine it wouldn't be too difficult to extend it to half a metre, possibly a metre. Now, this is working in air, and it relies on the fact that you're putting energy from your speakers into the air and making the air molecules vibrate, which creates these, these areas where you've got a calm spot, where the object wants to sit. If you used a different medium... For instance, if you put this into a, a cylinder of a very dense gas or a very light gas, would it behave differently? One of the nice things about uh, acoustics is that everything scales with the wavelength. So uh, as long as these waves exist, th- these phenomena that we're talking about exist. So, yeah, if you go to a different medium, the wavelength will change for a given frequency, but the physics doesn't actually change. So, yeah, it's applicable to any medium. And I'm really interested in water-like medium, and in particular tissue, because I'm interested in taking this technology to manipulate objects within the human body. You could, for instance, uh, operate on someone by manipulating an object inside their body by sending these sound waves in to create guidance signals for that object from outside. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think the the one to go for first is targeted drug delivery. So there's currently quite a bit of work and interest in this in this whole area. But the idea would be you'd encapsulate drugs in, in, uh, in little uh, capsules, very, very small, so they could be injected and then you could move them to the desired location uh, with this tractor beam technology and then blast them open with uh, a, a pulse of ultrasound. So you could deliver the drugs to precisely the location within the body you wanted to. Bruce Drinkwater with his sonic tractor beam he announced this week in Nature Communications. Now, Cambridge has a rich history of making discoveries about DNA, the genetic code inside each and every one of us. In the 50s, Watson and Crick announced that they'd unravelled the structure of DNA, the famous double helix shape. Now, 60 years later, another Cambridge scientist, Bill Amos, has made a further important DNA discovery. And this time, it's about the way the genetic code changes or mutates to allow mutation to happen. Thanks so much for joining us, Bill. Thank you. First off, what exactly is a mutation? Well, a mutation is just simply a change to the DNA. Um, If our DNA never changed, you might think that's rather good. But of course, that isn't very good because that means you have no variability. So if a disease comes along, you won't have any variability to fight it. So you can't evolve, you can't change yourself. So you need to balance novelty through mutations. But most mutations are actually harmful. So you want a little bit, but not too much. And when do these mutations happen? Well, this is the interesting thing. Previously, until quite recently, really, we weren't getting lots of DNA sequence, so we couldn't really quantify mutation rates very accurately. And everybody made the perfectly understandable assumption that they just occurred at random, like raindrops falling on the road. So the assumption was that these are so random, if you put out a whole load of different buckets in the road, they'd all fill up at the same rate. The really strange thing that my research seems to reveal is that, in fact, variability attracts mutations. So this means if you put out a bucket that already had some water in, you'd get more rain falling in it. And that's a really strange pattern. And one of the huge benefits 
in terms of evolution of the t- of the sort of phenomena that I've discovered is that it will attract more mutations towards the genes that really need to be more variable. So if you're variable to start with, you'll attract more mutations to make you more variable, and that helps you direct the mutations towards bits of the genome where they're maximally beneficial. And going back to your bucket analogy, where you're more likely to have all this water collecting in in one bucket rather than the other two, that suggests that these variations are, or these mutations are happening in a cluster. Why are they happening in these hotspots? Well, it's a slight freak of how the DNA replication process happens. We've got two copies of each chromosome, and when they come together, if there's a point in the chromosome where they differ, for example, you might get a gene from your mother with brown eyes that codes for brown eyes and one from your father with blue eyes, that's a difference. Actually, the genome will actually recognize this as a difference, and in trying to correct this difference, they tear up a bit of the DNA and relay it. It's like making a little repair job, and during the repair, they might make more mistakes. So that's why they tend to occur near to each other. So what you're saying is you can now predict where these mutations are going to happen within our genomes. The less random the mutation process is, the more you can start to get handles on predicting where these mutations are going to occur. This occurs in a population, but also even in individuals. And you may even have applications in looking at where mutations that predispose to cancer are more likely to occur. So it could have some really fundamental benefits, I suppose, to how we screen and predict for things like cancer in the future, medical implications. It's really important to understand, I mean, more and more as we're moving in the genomic era where everybody seems to be collecting DNA sequences from lots of organisms and huge amounts of genetic data from humans, we really are moving into the era where we can quantify very precisely where the variability lies And my research suggests that we can now use this to start predicting more accurately where mutations will occur in the future. Thank you very much. That's Bill Amos from the University of Cambridge. His study was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Journal. The idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we delve into the world of synthetic biology, building living machines from molecular parts that can do anything you can imagine. Plus, is sociability in your genes? And our gene of the month is looking for wedded bliss. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Greer Jackson. Still to come, why the Earth could be facing a nutrient crisis and what's fastest off the blocks, a Tesla electric supercar or a top-of-the-range Merc? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. But first, a new way to study disease and the best ways to manage them. The work is based on what's called big data. Put simply, as health records are translated onto computer systems, opportunities are opening up to use that data to study and treat diseases in ways that we couldn't before. Joel Dudley and his colleagues are developing the medical equivalent of a social networking site for diseases. They can look for links between an individual's genes, clinical measurements and their lifestyle factors and then plot where a person is on a disease landscape map. And that map can reveal a wealth of new things about a person's prognosis. The team have already discovered that there are actually three different forms of type 2 diabetes. The overall goal of the study was really to start to realise this idea of precision medicine, which is a big term, at least in the US, where President Obama... Uh, mentioned it in his State of the Union, which is, you know, taking a new look at medicine 
with a very data-rich lens. We have things like genetics and, and electronic health records and, and things like that. And can we uh, really take a new look at medicine and disease and understand it with us greater precision? And that's what we're trying to implement here. The approach we took actually borrowed some ideas from social networking. We represented each patient by all the pieces of information we had on them in the health records, for example, blood tests and height and weight and things like that. And we connected patients up in a network. An analogy in the social networking would be, you know, if people have the same friends or the same interest in movies or books, you would you say they're you know, more closely connected in a social network. That allowed us to sort of map out the whole clinical network, if you will, of the patient population at Mount Sinai, which really, in effect, represented a map and allowed us to really start to understand almost like Google Maps, like where's your GPS dot on this map and where do you fit in this patient population and where are people with various diseases? Well, let's consider the the diabetic side of it first, because that was the thing you used as your example here. What emerged when you started to draw together these trends in, in all people who are judged to have type 2 diabetes? As you may know, diabetes is a big health concern worldwide, but especially here in the United States and here in New York. So uh, we focused on, on diabetes initially, and we, when we built this map, the question we asked was, where are the patients with type 2 diabetes? Where do they live in, the, in this, this map? What we found, in fact, is that there were three distinct subgroups uh, that were emerging in the data, and we were able to show that the differences between these groups were clinically meaningful. So, for example... All type 2 diabetics have increased risk of cardiovascular complications, but there's one group in our, in our result that had actually had increased risk, even relative to other type 2 diabetics. And another interesting group was a group that had increased cancer risk. One can therefore presuppose that what we used to regard as a single condition may actually be more than one disease. And if you can group them like this, does that mean then that not just their risk of certain disease complications, but their likelihood of responding to certain treatments is going to be different? So by being able to analyse them in more detail, we can give better prognostic and diagnostic and treatment to each group individually. That's absolutely uh, the goal and uh, the opportunity. So I would like to point out we had genetics on these individuals as well, right? So we were even able to find genetic factors uh, that were unique to each group. And, you know, those genetic factors are also important because they might give us an opportunity to serve as biomarkers, for example. So if you're a newly diagnosed diabetic, the opportunity could be that now these genetic factors allow us to say, okay, well, you're actually maybe a type 4 diabetic uh, in the future if it turns out that, you know, there is that many types of diabetes. And and while you know, we're worried about cancer for all diabetes patients, but now are these genetic factors may be indicating that we should screen you much more frequently. That's diabetes. Does the technique, though, mean that you could take the same strategy and apply this to a full constellation of illnesses? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, we're excited about this, this uh, study because the approach is generalizable. So it wasn't, you know, designed to only study type 2 diabetes. It could be uh, used to study any sort of common uh, complex disease that has many factors. It could be rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and, and, and cancer. Countries such as um, Denmark or even the UK and, and National Health Service, where you have such huge volumes of data uh, really collected and centralized, we have huge opportunities to apply these methods. And hopefully, uh, these maps will continue to get better because um, we can incorporate information such as digital health and wearables and, and data coming from apps, I think, eventually in the future where we'll have a much more higher resolution and maybe get to the point where we have uh, a tool that's sort of like Google Maps for health and for complex and chronic diseases. And for the people who have diabetes, who you've considered here, are there any immediate repercussions for your average type 2 diabetic based on what you've discovered? 
with research, uh, you know, there's, once we've discovered something, we've got to test it and test it again and, and make sure it's real. And the next step here is to do a prospective study where we're really designing a study to replicate these findings. And the, the methods are, are quite scalable. So we could even join forces with other health centers to, to really test this at a much, much larger scale and, and hopefully translate these findings into uh, improved diabetes care more rapidly. Joel Dodley from Icon School of Medicine in New York. The work he was describing was published this week in Science Translational Medicine. Now, Saturn has a tiny moon called Enceladus, which is very mysterious. It's frozen solid on the surface, but has a warm internal ocean that periodically spurts plumes of ice particles out into space. Now researchers modelling the chemistry of these plumes have worked out what Enceladus is made of, and it has some intriguing opportunities for life. Planetary geologist David Rothery from the Open University has been taking me through the results. What's in the paper is a series of experiments taking alkaline saline water, such as we think the internal ocean of Enceladus will be, and letting it circulate through powdered rock samples. And they tried it through carbonaceous chondrite material, which is the most primitive form of meteorite, and some other kinds of rock. And really what the chemistry that was coming out into the water that had passed through carbonaceous chondrite was most similar to what's found in the plume. So they're suggesting that the core of Enceladus is like primitive meteoritic material. That means it hasn't melted and produced uh, more evolved kinds of rocks. Mm. And was there anything else interesting that this paper highlighted? Well, the paper suggests that there should be quite a lot of hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, that's the H2 molecule produced. And this is because of Uh, hydration reactions between the water and the rocky material. And this is just dissolved hydrogen gas, which should be in the water that's venting out of these hot vents on the floor of Enceladus's ocean. And because samples of the ocean are being sprayed out into space, we should be seeing H2 as well as the other things that we've already seen. And this is going to be tested when we get the results of last Wednesday's flyby through the plumes by the Cassini probe, because that passed at 49 kilometres above the surface of Enceladus, a really low flyby. And if the results, when we get them in a week or two from Cassini, show molecular hydrogen in these plumes as well, that will give us greater confidence in the results from this newly published study. And if there is hydrogen there, that's very exciting for people that are trying to look for habitats for life. Because if you've got hydrogen coming out of a hot vent, then that's something that microbes can use to power their metabolism, as they do on the floor of our own ocean. That would be a pretty exciting discovery indeed. It would. We're not going to find life All we will do will be confirm a viable habitat for life. So in the next coming weeks, we might be able to confirm whether there's hydrogen there. But are we likely to know whether there's life anytime soon, perhaps in some future missions? We do need a future mission, one that's got a mass spectrometer that will be able to measure and analyse large organic molecules, of which there should be traces in the plumes. If there are microbes living on the floor of Enceladus' ocean, Some will get caught up in this spray which is vented to space and we will be able to study those. So we've got to sit tight for perhaps a decade or more. I mean, I feel like all the uh, attention's really been on Mars when it comes to finding microbial life within our solar system. 
Yes, and rightly so, Mars is closer to us, but to get at the life on Mars, you have to land at the surface, which we can achieve, we know we can do that. But Enceladus, you don't even have to land, you can fly through the plumes, and if there's life there, you'll be flying through a spray of dead life, and it's easier to collect at Enceladus. So we shouldn't cease to look at Enceladus just because we're also looking at Mars. We'll be awaiting the results with bated breath then. That was David Rothery from the Open University and the paper he was discussing was published in the journal Nature Communications. In the past, much of the world resembled an African savanna. It was dominated by large, free-roaming animals. These were known collectively as megafauna. And in this case, size is very important because big animals like these ones played a key role in redistributing nutrients around the environment in their droppings. The same was also true, actually, in the oceans. But now that many of these animals are extinct, the planet could be facing a nutrient crisis as a result, as Oxford University's Chris Doughty explains to Rosalind Davis. Large animals don't necessarily eat more than all the small animals in an area, but they do move a lot more. And so they're really important for this process of of transporting nutrients from point A to point B. And so right now, the the world we find ourselves in, uh, you have lots of concentration gradients in nutrients. So you have places with lots of nutrients and places with very few nutrients. However, in the past, we think that nutrients were much more evenly distributed, both on land and in the ocean. What did you see in your marine investigations? Marine mammals, and especially whales, because of their large size, are are really important in redistributing nutrients both horizontally, but almost more importantly, they they redistribute the nutrients vertically. So they tend to feed at depth around 100 metres or so, and then go to the surface where they need to breathe and tend to redistribute these nutrients in the surface waters. And this is actually a really key point because normally nutrient cycling occurs where you have nutrients flowing from mountaintops to the ocean bottoms. That's basically following gravity. But what we showed in this paper is that mammals like whales, they actually can move nutrients against gravity. So basically restoring nutrients to the land surface. And we show that in the past, this redistribution process was actually quite important. And it's less than 10% of what it formerly was. Oh, wow, less than 10%. So it's actually gone in quite steep decline. That's right. And that's basically due to just population declines in whales, marine mammals, seabirds and migratory fish. And is there anything that we can do to solve this problem? If we want to restore animal population, just stop hunting them and eventually they'll come back. On land, it's a bit trickier because we're facing an ever more crowded planet. We can think about redesigning our pasture systems to kind of replicate natural systems where you have more biodiverse fenceless pasture systems. And then we could start to see an increase of nutrient fluxes as we hypothesize existed in the past. And so are we seeing sort of a decline in plant quality associated with the decline in nutrient content? That's right. That's what we would hypothesize. Lots of ecosystems, especially tropical ecosystems, are phosphorus limited. And by that, we mean if you added more phosphorus, these plants would tend to grow faster. If the plants aren't as productive because there's less phosphorus, That means there's going to be less fruit available for animals. And so it basically has these cascading effects. Is it just phosphorus or are there other nutrients in this cycle that are on the decline as well? No, it's actually uh, other nutrients also. I focus on phosphorus because phosphorus is kind of one of these elements that are distributed by the animals that's really key to both plant life, animal life, and human life because we need it for our fertilizers. Easily accessible mined phosphorus may run out in as little as 50 years. And so the question is, what do we do in 50 years when we no longer have cheap phosphorus? Maybe we could kind of try to restore this natural system of recycling phosphorus that had existed in the past. So are plants 
in the UK would be much more healthy if we still had elephants roaming the land. That's right. So basically, large animals are specifically important because they can move these nutrients over vast distances. It's quite interesting. Most people don't realize it, but megafauna were once globally abundant. A lot of people confuse megafauna with dinosaurs, but megafauna are mammals that co-evolved with our current ecosystems and actually probably would still be here if human hunting and climate change hadn't caused their extinction. These animals were globally abundant, and without them, there was a, a vast decrease in what we would expect in fertility. That was Chris Doughty speaking about his work published this week in PNAS. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Greer Jackson. Now we've had a look at the science behind the headlines, it's time to move on to the main section of our programme, pollution and its solutions. We've known for some time that air pollution has a negative impact on our health and cities worldwide are now coming under increasing pressure to clean up their acts. London is one of them. The UK capital is now facing fines from the European Commission of £300 million per year for failing to meet required clean air standards for gases like oxides of nitrogen, NO2, and particulates which are known to harm health. Caris Lestrange went to the Greater London Authority to speak with the Deputy Mayor for Environment and Energy, Matthew Penchiles, to find out the scale of the problem. I'm not going to sit here and say that London is not a congested city, because clearly it is a congested city. But when you think about the population-wise, we've seen uh, huge economic growth, and yet we've had been reallocating quite a lot of road space away from cars to buses in the first instance and, and more recently to bicycles. Obviously, air pollution is something that's a huge problem at the moment. How does London compare to other big cities in the world? Uh, well, as in most major cities, and certainly European cities too, so developed cities, uh, air pollution, air quality is certainly a challenge. But we're actually doing relatively well compared to most of the world's cities. And if you measure it by health impact among 36 of the world's biggest cities, we do come ninth. Uh, now, that's, that's obviously not good enough, but I think it does show you sort of where we sit in the world and, and the fact that we are making some progress there. So is it true there's a potential that London could be fined for the amount of air pollution it has at the moment? It's worth saying that we are hardly alone in this. In fact, the great majority of EU states have failed to comply with NO2 compliances. Um, but the Commission has started faction proceedings against our government. And it is worth saying that the VW scandal where a car company has been shown to be cheating on their emission standards kind of shows you perhaps some of the blame lies here in that we've seen a, a shift to diesel cars and those diesel cars are not being as clean as we've been promised, which is why cities like such as London, other big ones in England and, and the UK and also on the continent are sort of fighting back with one hand tied behind their back because one of the biggest tools we have is a clean car fleet. And if those vehicles are continuously not performing at what we've been told they were going to perform, you can see the obvious difficulties there. Some worry, isn't it? That was London's Deputy Mayor Matthew Penchars, and he was speaking with Caris Lestrange. Regardless of where the blame lies, pollution is a serious problem, especially when it comes to our health. So to what extent are we being exposed and what might the risks be? Ben Barrett is a researcher from King's College London who's using cutting-edge technology to measure what we breathe in. This is called a microethylometer, which is a fancy name for a diesel emissions monitor. So it sucks air in through a tube, which mimics your breathing, onto a filter, and it monitors how black that filter gets as a measure of black carbon. 
And black carbon is emitted through any combustion process. But in cities, it's from vehicles, principally diesel vehicles. And that will give an indication of how much I'm inhaling as I walk around the streets of London. Yes, it takes a reading every few seconds. And we'll couple it with a GPS watch so we can see where you are, which really visualises the pollution as you walk around. And I should just say it's bright blue. It's a bit bigger than the size of my palm. And then it has a rubber tube coming out the top with a clip, which I imagine I'm going to attach, I don't know, somewhere on my blazer. So as you say, if you could clip that to your lapel. Okay. So that's the GPS watch switched on as well. If you could put that on your wrist. I feel like a child being dressed. <laughs> it's all this pesky radio equipment I've got to carry. I'm thinking myself more as a doctor than a uh, nursery teacher. Fully equipped, I hit the streets, and I really wanted to put Ben's gear to the test. So I pootled along busy roads, swaggered along the river to Big Ben, and then, to really give him a run for his money, I got into a black cab. Uh, I literally just want to go to Waterloo. When I got back to King's College, I'd been out for a full hour. Ben loaded the data onto his computer, and... I've pulled up a map. I've combined the GPS data with your pollution monitoring data, and here's a map of your... Last walk around London, I can see you leaving outside our building, walking along the river for a little while, and there was a really quite low. Then you hit the bridge at Westminster, then something happened and levels shot up. And on this map, I can see levels going from nice yellows to deep reds, which is not good. Sort of like a traffic-like system. And, and interesting, those red sections are actually where I got into a taxi. Right, I guess that's what you've done, because when someone gets into a car, and taxis are particularly bad, levels do tend to shoot up quite a lot. Now, if you look at a time series of your results, we can see these nice low levels along the river, one, two micrograms, and then it shoots up. So we've gone from two or three up to 35 to 40 micrograms, so that's 10 times higher during that taxi journey than afterwards. That's really surprising because you would have thought being in a taxi you're more protected from your environment and the air pollution. Yes, people assume that inside their little protective box, whether it's a car or a taxi, they're protected from the pollution outside. But actually, when you think about it, you're sitting right amongst the source of pollution, which is those vehicle exhaust. And it's coming straight out of the exhaust, in through the air vent of the car and into the cab of the car itself. And this was measuring black carbon... Specifically, how is that affecting me when I breathe it in? What effect is that having on my body? Well, in some ways, black carbon is acting as a tracer for vehicle emissions or diesel vehicle emissions in particular. And we're still researching what are the components which are most harmful or toxic to health. But there's a mixture of particles, liquids, gases, all of which that come in this cloud of pollution, some of which are coated. So... Some of it will be oxidising metals, which can attack the lining of the lung. Some of them will be um, hydrocarbons, which are carcinogenic. So it's a real pea soup of all sorts of chemicals and, and compounds in there. And then if it gets into your bloodstream, if they're small enough, then that travels around to all of your organs, brain, heart and so on. And I imagine that changes also short-term and also long-term exposure if I live in London. Yes, it's this discovery which has really highlighted the problem that we've got with air pollution, the idea that these pollutants can get into the bloodstream. So air pollution is now linked to cardiovascular effects, cognitive effects, cancers and so on, because you're right, as soon as it gets into the bloodstream, it can get anywhere in the body. 
and there are both long-term and short-term effects. So these particles will accumulate over time and have a slow impact on your body, uh, reduced lung growth, cardiovascular problems and so on. But people who are already susceptible because they've developed some kind of health condition will be affected in the short term. So they may have an exacerbation, whether it's an asthma attack or a COPD attack or even a heart attack. This is all really frightening. It is frightening. And what's really striking about it is this is a major public health challenge. But the level of understanding is low compared to other public health challenges such as obesity, water quality, smoking and so on. So the public needs much more information about the nature of the problem, how they can afford it, and then there'll be more pressure on politicians and policymakers to help clean up the problem. Obviously, the long-term solution is to get rid of pollution altogether in cities. In the short term, what can I be doing? I'm a cyclist back home, so I'm thinking, should I be wearing one of those masks? You've seen yourself from your own data. Getting into a car is not the way to protect yourself. And active travel is so good for you in so many different ways. So there's a clear lesson to be learned there about the benefits of walking on quiet roads compared to the risks involved in getting a taxi in London or any other city in the UK. Do you know what I did to corroborate those results, Chris? What, your own personal experiment? My own personal experiment. What I got did you home do? and I blew my nose. So much black snot. Um, is that normal? <laughs> no, it's no. not normal. <laughs> don't know about you, Chris, and what comes out of your no, nose. No, no, you don't want to know. Anyway, that was lovely uh, to hear. Thank you, Greer, for that uh, wonderful addition to the programme. That was Ben Barrett you were listening to from King's College down in London. Now, one solution to the urban pollution problem is to switch to electric vehicles. But what's the state of the technology? And is the market really ready for such a gear change? Peter Cowley invests in these sorts of technologies and he's with us because he's been investigating in their potential. First of all, Peter, how how do these electric vehicles crucially differ from vehicles that are traditionally powered with petrol? Well, the difference primarily, of course, is, is the drivetrain itself or the source of the energy, which for petrol engine, of course, is a rotary engine, which is then generating from petrol. And for electric, it's taking some battery source, which could be a chemical battery, could be a flywheel for regenerative, or it could be a capacitor, and turning that into power, which then drives the wheels. That's the main difference. So the rest of the car remains basically the same. To get the market to embrace this technology, there has to be easy provision of power and charging. If you look across just the UK at the moment, what does that look like in terms of provision of top-ups? Well, I have one at home, which was subsidised by the government, and uh, there are a number around Cambridge. The smaller charges, there are around about 10,000 in the UK at the moment. Uh, Most of those will be on people's private drives. What about uh, how long it takes to charge them up, though? Because people don't want to spend years living at motorway service stations waiting for their cars to charge. They want to get from A to B as quickly as they can. So how long can these cars take, or yeah, how long do they take to charge? an interesting figure here. If, if I charge mine at home, which is uh, not a 13-amp socket, but the next one up, it charges at about 10 miles extra range per hour. However, if you charge in one of these superchargers, which Tesla have, you're charging at about 200 miles per hour. So for most people, it's just charging overnight. You're charging at work. It won't make any difference. It's only, as you say, if you want to stop off on the way. The thing that will determine whether a product is embraced by the market though must be the cost effectiveness so when you work out the the price in terms of buying the vehicle and then the price per mile traveled 
What do the numbers look like? At the moment, it costs me about two pence a mile on battery, and it costs me about 12p a mile on petrol. Therefore, I've got about eight, you know, 10p or so difference. So in principle, electric vehicles should be cheaper. And at the moment, there's a government subsidy of exactly £5,000 per car. So I would guess the break-even on electric vehicle is within the lifetime of using it, sort of six or seven years. Now, cynics would say that are we not just pushing all the pollution into the countryside because you need a coal-fired power station churning out current to charge up your electric car. So instead of the pollution congregating in London, it's just billowing out in Oxfordshire or something. Yeah, I mean, they call it the long tailpipe. This is the tailpipe going back to the point of production. Two or three things. One... The pollution, of course, is ending up in the atmosphere a long way from where the people are wandering around down Oxford Street. So that's actually in a better place. The generation of this depends very much on the mix of energy, whether it comes from renewables or not. And in fact, funnily enough, Paraguay is the best place to be in the world for this because almost all of it comes from hydroelectric. And Australia and India are the worst. It's probably more efficiently produced as well. So in fact, you're moving the pollution away and you're producing less pollution. The other factor to take into account is the pollution generated by building the battery and recycling it because that is more than it would be for a petrol engine. So if you take the cradle-to-grave figure, it becomes a lot less exciting than if you're just taking the usage figure. Thank you very much. Tech pundit Peter Cowley. Now, thanks to BBC reporter Wasim Mirza, we managed to get our hands on an electric supercar to try it out and to compare its performance against a more traditionally powered high-performance car. This is a Tesla Model S P85, uh, and it is completely electric. I I had the opportunity to really give this a go because I'd won it in a competition. So here we are, pitting this car against the best of the old generation of technology, the the gasoline-fuelled vehicle known as the Mercedes-AMG CLK55. Who will be the winner? Mm, I think I know who will be, but uh, let's see what Chris thinks. (laughs) Chris? We're going to win. No, we should be clear, shouldn't we? Wasim's going to drive the electric car and we're going to take the petrol. I expect, actually, that Wasim will be faster away from the blocks, but I reckon we can beat him in terms of ultimate speed and range. I mean, I think you guys should place a bet. Who are you, Fiverr? Who's, what, who's in? <laughs> I'm in. Fiverr. I'll see your Fiverr and I'll raise you a Fiverr and a go of your electric car. Absolutely. <laughs> How was it? How do you think you did? Okay, that was exhilarating with a capital E. I've never driven that fast, ever. Do you think it was enough to beat the Tesla, though? I'm quietly confident, but mm, that's pretty good technology over there, so could go either way. We're yet to get the results, we're seeing, but how do you think you fared? I think that uh, the Tesla has quite clearly won. Chris, what do you reckon? I'm pretty confident that we did okay. Whether or not we actually beat him, I don't know. Well, we'll wait and see what the data shows and then we'll whack out who owes who what then, hey? Okay, that's fine with me. Hope you're feeling rich, (laughs) Wasim. Well, unfortunately, we're not Top Gear and our data were inconclusive. So it seems as though you've both got off lightly. Now, we seem if we ignore our data altogether, what do the specs say? Who would have won? Well, it's quite clear, really. According to the specs, the Tesla should be out in the lead because on paper, it has a 0-60 time of 4.2 seconds. 
Uh, and it is quite a fair test because the Mercedes is also rear wheel driven. Yet it's not to 60 time on paper is 5.4 seconds. So there is quite a big gap there. Yeah, a second or so. Peter, you're looking a little sceptical over there. Well, I was wondering what the noise was when they were taking off. <laughs> I assume it's because you were on a runway somewhere. <laughs> now, I'm only, now, I am sceptical, as we discussed earlier, but I have driven a Tesla and didn't overall think it was something I would want to buy. That doesn't mean necessarily I wouldn't buy one, of course. <laughs> We're seeing. <laughs> um, so so I, I understand that was a, an older generation of a Tesla model. Okay, so, yeah. um, And it's amazing to look how far things have moved on in only a relatively short period of time. You've got uh, bigger battery packs now being put in these vehicles, and that presumably gives access to greater power and longer ranges. And certainly in the week that I had this car, I experienced great amount of enjoyment. The torque was unbelievable. And that's coming from somebody who is an electric car driver already. And it struck me, going back to my own car, that I was convinced for a period of time that something is wrong with my car. <laughs> and of course it wasn't. It was just an amazing experience with the Tesla. Now, Asim, it wasn't all bells and whistles because you did run into a bit of difficulty when getting to the race itself. Yes, um, knowing that I had used the car at highway speeds, uh, I, I wanted to be doubly sure that we had enough range. And as it happened, I was delayed by 30 minutes getting onto the airfield. Left us all in the rain, yeah. Asim. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it was quite a cold morning as it well. Really and cold. of course, that doesn't help batteries at the moment either. Unless... Well, Sam, is this a very long-winded way of saying you were late because you ran out of juice? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, partly it's true, but no, that's not the whole story, is it? I, I mean, it would have been a poor test had we have run out on the airfield after doing our time trials. That would have been a disaster because we would have needed a flatbed recovery from that deserted airfield in the middle of nowhere, uh, which would have been a real big challenge. So I wanted to prevent that. Thankfully, we did. We, we, we got away with it, I think. <laughs> Thank you very much, BBC reporter Wasim Mercer. And if you want to see our track test, we've posted the footage on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the naked scientists. Regardless of what Wasim's story is, uh, the fact that he was late does boil down to the range of electric vehicles being an issue, and that in turn is all down to how much energy we can store. And the present hold-up in that department is the battery technology that we're relying on. Well, that could be about to change now, thanks to a new discovery from Cambridge University's Claire Gray, who is a world-leading expert in the art of making better batteries. Claire, first of all, before we dwell on the new discovery that you've announced this week, how does traditional, hundreds-of-year-old battery technology work? What's the chemistry there? The heart of the battery is very much the two different materials that make up the electrodes and actually store the energy. So one of them is called the positive and one of them is called the negative. And the positive electrode contains a material called lithium cobalt oxide and that contains layers of lithium, cobalt and oxygen. And the negative is made up of graphite, so that's the same material that's in pencils. And so when you put it together, you have your lithium cobalt oxide and your graphite and that's the battery that's been around for 25 years and that's the one that sits in our mobile phones and it's in our laptops and it's really kicked off the whole portable electronics revolution. So it's sort of based chemically on the fact that you have two chemicals and one wants to give away electrons, negative charges, the other chemical wants to soak them up in some way by a chemical reaction happening and we can tap off those surplus electrons and send them around a circuit before we're allowing them to complete That's that right, journey. And, and work and do some load. Yeah, so what's the problem with the present generation then of, of car batteries like the electric car that Wasim had that, that went flat on him? Um, why are the batteries not better? 
Well, there were multiple problems, but the, the biggest one is that the amount of electrons and the energy density. So the energy is, the density is the voltage times the number of electrons you can get out of them is limited by the weight of the material and the type of material. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is it's difficult to charge and discharge the batteries multiple times. So you're used to your mobile phone batteries lasting for a couple of years if you're lucky, but you want your car battery to last for seven or ten years because it's so expensive. And so what's happening in these batteries is the lithiums are moving backwards and forwards from our lithium cobalt oxide to our graphite, and we're expecting these materials not to change, but they will eventually do that. I suppose the, it's a bit like if I keep shoving a key in a lock and pulling it out again, eventually exactly. the lock wears and the key gets loose in the lock, and it's sort of similar with your battery yes, architecture. Yes, and the other problem also is that when you... So we, if I put my battery... To together it wouldn't work because I've got lithium cobalt oxide and graphite they're not oxidized and reduced so what I need to do is I need to charge them so I put them in my charger and then I make very reactive materials and then those reactive materials can react with other components in the battery like the electrolyte. So the electrolyte is the liquid that allows the lithium ions to move backwards and forwards and so over time all of these reactions create side products and they eat up lithium and gradually the capacity dies and so that's one of the major reasons your battery and your cell phone is dying is because of these side reactions. Right. And the research that you're announcing this week that may help to solve this problem, what is that and how does, how does it work? So it's a very different chemistry and I should stress there's a lot of work globally on this type of chemistry and it's called a lithium air battery. So it's a battery where lithium reacts with oxygen in the air and that has the same theoretical energy density as gasoline, or it approaches it. So and gasoline is an amazing material because you're storing energy between the CC, the carbon bonds, and the carbon-hydrogen bonds. So it's been very difficult to, to get to the same energy density. But because you're reacting lithium and oxygen, and both of those are very light, if we could get that to work, it's the so-called ultimate battery chemistry. So people have been able to make a lot of progress on this chemistry, but it's been very difficult to get the reaction of lithium peroxide and backed oxygen reversibly. And have you managed to solve that? We have done something quite different. What we've shown is that if we add an extra chemical, in this case it's lithium iodide, instead of forming lithium peroxide, we actually form lithium hydroxide. And so now it's a reaction of lithium plus water and oxygen to form the lithium hydroxide. And we can reversibly do this for multiple cycles. And so our batteries have been out there for months, cycling backwards and forwards. And what's really interesting about the new chemistry is that it's got water in it. And so what we're doing is we're getting one step closer to what we really want, and that's the lithium air battery. So we want a battery that can breathe the same air that we have that contains oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide and water. And our battery for the first time actually tolerates the water. Brilliant. You can read about it if you want to in the journal Science, where Claire announced that discovery this week. That was Claire Gray from the University of Cambridge. Battery technology may well be advancing in leaps and bounds, but the majority of the rolling stock on the roads are traditionally petrol-powered vehicles. So what can we do while these vehicles are still in service? One solution could be to go halfway, an electric motor that's powered by diesel. In other words, a hybrid. Alex Shea is a CEO and co-founder of Vantage Power, a company retrofitting buses with hybrid engines that dramatically reduces their emissions. Caris Lestrange went to hear how. Instead of being the iconic red that most London double-deckers are, it's a beautiful kind of blue and green. But no, it is just a double-decker bus, isn't it? What's different about it? From the exterior, nothing is different about this bus. It is a double-decker bus. It's when you get under the skin that things have changed 
quite substantially. What used to be a big diesel engine, a big gearbox, and lots of chunky metal, all of that has been removed, and our hybrid powertrain has been retrofitted into where the engine used to be. So it is a diesel bus converted to hybrid power. Could you explain a bit about what you've done under the hood, I suppose? If you look in the back of a normal bus, you typically see a big engine, 6.9 to 9 litres for the techies among you, and that's mated to a gearbox, which in itself weighs about half a tonne. And you have a lot of other components around that, cooling packs, auxiliary components, things of that nature. Every single part of that has been removed, and by the end of that, you end up with a big, empty engine bay and big discernible features such as engine mounting points. We have a self-contained hybrid, so it's fully pre-assembled. The bus gets lifted in the air on some bus lifts and dropped down over the hybrid system, and that hybrid system bolts into all the existing engine mounting points and all of the systems in the bus that we don't touch, so pneumatics for your braking and suspension, hydraulics for your power steering, and alternators for your electrical load. One of the main problems with electric vehicles tends to be the batteries that are used. They tend to die as we're driving them and so on. How does this hybrid overcome that problem? So a hybrid typically merges an internal combustion engine, which uses fuel as its energy source, with an electric system of some kind. Our system is what's called a series hybrid system, which essentially is an electric bus. It works much like you might have an electric remote control car. You have a big battery and it feeds an electric motor and off it drives. But that battery is only sufficient to drive the bus for somewhere between 4 and 10 kilometers, which is not sufficient for normal use. And this is when we bring in the internal combustion side. Our engine is completely disconnected from the wheels. It can go at any speed, even when the bus is stationary or it could be off when the bus is going fast. And that engine just serves to generate electricity to recharge the battery pack. And what that allows us to do is it allows us to run the engine at its most efficient point so we can save fuel in that way and improve the emissions. It also allows us to turn off the engine when we're sitting in traffic or moving very slowly. And that means that we're not producing idle emissions. We're not having the engine idling for no reason as you would have in a normal vehicle. These buses still need diesel to work them, I suppose. Is it much less than what you would use normally? Absolutely. So we are typically taking buses that are between 6 and 12 years old and putting in a hybrid system, and we've seen consistently 40% or better improvement in the fuel consumption. Whereas before, what this exact bus sitting in front of us, driving it around London, would have been about 4.5 miles to the gallon in terms of fuel consumption, we are regularly seeing better than eight miles to gallon, which is a massive improvement. And depending on how many miles you do per year, that could save the bus operator up to £20,000 worth of fuel per bus per year. Are these the future of public transport? Hybrid is the future, I would say, for at least the next five to ten years. We will have increasingly increasing number of electric buses on the road during that time, but I don't think we can see... a large-scale proliferation until we have substantial swathes of the city covered by a standard charging infrastructure, and we're not even close to formulating that. Electric vehicles, electric buses are the future. I think the industry is quite united in that fact. 
but it's a long way off still. Vantage Power's Alex Shea. Those hybrid buses should be carrying fair-paying customers around the capital from later next year. Thank you also to all our other guests this week. That was Claire Gray, Wasim Mercer, Ben Barrett and Peter Cowley. Well, it's that time of the show where we look at our question of the week and Rosalind Davis has been gazing out into the distance, pondering this question from Eleanor. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. Why do so many people enjoy looking at views? Everyone wants a room with a view, but why? Pekka Oilinki on Facebook thinks it calms the mind by ensuring we can see what's coming our way. I asked Michael Forster, a researcher in aesthetics from the University of Vienna, what makes a view so satisfying? In general, the enjoyment of a view comes from a reaction of the brain's reward center. This kind of reaction can be triggered by a variety of factors, including the interesting complexity that operates at early visual levels and also deeper processing stages, such as memory. I find looking at a view really soothing. Why is this the case? The natural view demands very little of our attention and gives no reason for us to think about our everyday demands or worries. In other words, we are able to just let go and enjoy the scenery. It helps us let go from the world around us. But listeners Rachel Jones and her husband reckon it's because it speaks to our inner explorer. Another explanation, especially for the enjoyment of views from mountaintops or vantage points, is grounded in human evolution. Humans are by nature curious about the environment, because exploring our surroundings in evolution helped us detect threats to our life and helped us to find food. These are two of the most important factors for our survival. If we can do the surveying from a high or sweeping vantage, we can both survey a large area for food and at the same time spot threats from a far distance. Is it the same for landscapes that are man-made? For cityscapes, on the other hand, we may have slightly different reasons for our fascination. Here, the most striking examples are of structures where humans created something of extraordinary skill or magnitude, such as the New York skyline with the skyscrapers or the Eiffel Tower. The enjoyment most probably comes from a mix of social engagement pride or awe that we as humans are able to create such enormous structures, or again, interest in complexity. Pride in our constructions, looking out for danger, and an escape from everyday distractions. Just some reasons why we like to look at views. Thanks to Michael Forster for helping me out with that one. Next time, we'll be answering Colin's question. Why do we lose hair on our heads, but not on the rest of our body? Do you know why we go bald, but only on our heads? I think my dad would like to know the answer to this one. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at a Naked Scientist, or join the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Thank you very much to Karis Lestrange for production. Next time, we're going to be taking on your science questions. You can send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com or tweet at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. My name's Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.